Today on the podcast, we're talking about guardianships, but we're going way beyond Britney. Bloomberg Law just came out with a five-part investigative series on this topic, and we're going to get into how and why guardianships can go very, very wrong. Hello, you're listening to On the Merits, the weekly legal news podcast from Bloomberg Law and Bloomberg Government. I'm your host, David Schultz. So probably most of you are at least vaguely familiar with the contours of the Britney Spears guardianship saga. After some mental health struggles, her family placed her in a guardianship, ostensibly as a way to protect the pop star's immense assets and earning power from herself. However, after she largely recovered, it took many years and lots of online advocacy for Britney to eventually extricate herself from this legal structure. This was just one example of an adult guardianship functioning perhaps less than ideally. But Bloomberg Law reporters Ronnie Green and Holly Barker looked into it and found out that the Britney Spears case was just the very, very tip of the iceberg. According to their five-part series released last week, guardianships can be easily abused by bad actors. And even when everyone involved wants a guardianship to be dissolved, they often continue on for years. We'll get into all of that with the reporters, but first, just so we're all on the same page, I asked Ronnie to explain to me what an adult guardianship is and how it's supposed to work. These are intended to be situations where an adult, whether it's a younger adult or an older adult, is not able to make his or her own decisions. So what will happen is sometimes a family member, other times a lawyer, a guardian, someone else will file a petition with the court to put this person under a guardianship. And when that happens, what that means is generally the person loses many of their rights to make their own decisions. You know, small decisions, do I want to buy this car? Larger decisions, can I get married? You need sort of court approval and guardian approval to to do a lot of basic and really profound things as well. And this is not meant as punishment or punitive measure. This is meant as something that is protective for the person who is under the guardianship. Is that right? That's the idea. That's the idea is that this, in, in fact, the person under the guardianship is called a protected person. So the idea is, comes from, I think, a good goal of helping someone, an adult, who's not able to make their own decisions, make those decisions. But as we found, A, your rights are restricted in significant ways, more so than many people expect. And B, there's very scant oversight, scrutiny, accountability. So when you look in the middle of that, the system is wide open for abuse. So one of the many things that I found really surprising about your series is is that the background of the people who get placed under these guardianships is very wide. You know, I, of course, we've all heard of the Britney Spears case. And, you know, like in that case, I thought that most people who got placed under guardianships were wealthy people who had assets that they wanted to protect or that their family felt were in danger. But based on reading your series, it sounds like that's not the case at all. Uh, Holly, can you tell me a little bit about who's the typical person that gets placed under a guardianship? There is no typical person. Uh, I think that the incentives uh, for abuse or exploitation and the opportunity varies. Uh, But there's really no way to immunize yourself from this, uh, from bad actors, uh, at least short of really robust estate planning and lots of other measures uh, that a lot of people don't have uh, resources for. It's also difficult, I think, uh, for people who are elderly and don't have any surviving loved ones to, to assist them, if there is any any anything ripe for the taking, if there is an opportunity for expectation, if there's money sitting in a pot that people aren't paying attention to, there's somebody out there who's who, if they see the opportunity, they will take it. 
The first part of the series looks at what happens when there's not enough oversight on Guardians, and it focuses on a now-defunct company in New Mexico called Ayudando Guardians, which contracted with the state to oversee the welfare of largely low-income and indigent adults. As it was later discovered, the company's executives were actually using their clients' money along with the government contracts they won as their own private piggy bank. Ronnie says this scheme went on for years with no shortages of red flags. They were defrauding their clients for over a decade, according to the Department of Justice. And nobody in the state, nobody in the courts, nobody in the system paid attention and was looking at them closely enough to know this was going on, even though there were warning signs abounding. So the DOJ said the Ayudanda ultimately diverted about $12 million of its clients' money to 1,000 people, um, veterans with post-traumatic stress, people with serious mental health disabilities. They took advantage of them. And what really was striking for me was just a few months before the DOJ indictment dropped, the state guardianship office, which gave them a contract year after year for over a decade, was asking Ayodondo to share quote-unquote success stories, showing just how oblivious the state was to what was going on, how really no one was watching. So in this case, there was a tremendous amount of pain, a tremendous amount of financial loss, but no one was keeping them accountable. And I think it's a, it's a snapshot of the larger system where you can get away with it in guardianships. Well, let's take a step back and just talk about what Ayodondo was supposed to be doing. And, you know, I think that before I read your your series, when I thought of a guardianship, I thought of something, again, like Britney Spears, where the guardian is a relative of the person under the guardianship. But that's not always the case. Um, what did Ayudando, what role did they play in, you know, the guardianship industrial complex? So they sort of filled the gap for predominantly low-income, needier folks who weren't going to have a great deal of money to spend on somebody managing their assets. They didn't have many to to manage. What they needed was somebody to sort of get their Social Security in line, to make sure that they were getting their benefits, to make sure that they weren't squandering those benefits, to keep a roof over their head, to make sure that they were sort of safe and sound. And the idea was when you had these, for lack of a better word, you know, semi-indigent older people without any support network, Ayudando was supposed to provide this affordable service uh, that was vetted by the government. And part of the reason that they were supposed to be able to do it was because they were doing an aggregate. They had this massive pool of people uh, and a massive pool of money that they were moving around with little oversight. And I should, I want to pause because we say little oversight but because of all of those aspects of this, the Social Security Administration, the VA, the, the state approving them for these contracts, they, they were there. They were visiting. They just weren't seeing the red flags, or if they did see them, weren't acting on them. Well, Holly's hitting on a good point. There's a difference between what is there on paper and then what actually happens in practice. We looked at year after year the contracts that Ayudando had with the state of New Mexico. They would have an annual contract every year for more than a decade, usually about $650,000 or so a year. So $7 million in all. And if you look at those contracts, there are all these provisions where the state can do this, the state can do that, the state can inspect this, we're going to demand that. But they were doing none of that. They were doing none of that in really an effective way. And what was happening was Ayudando Guardians, the company, and their directors saw this, and they easily fooled the state. They easily fooled the Department of Veteran Affairs, and they frankly got greedy. In the, in the words of their own CFO who we interviewed, 
Well, speaking of uh, that CFO that you mentioned, uh, Holly, you spoke with her from jail. She's in in prison right now. How did that come about, and what was that conversation like? Uh, well, so it started with writing a few letters, uh, and she was uh, the only one of the defendants in that case who got back to us, uh, and I was frankly surprised that any of them did. She actually, her sons reached out to me first to sort of kick my tires uh, and I think figure out who I was and screen me before she bothered to, to connect directly. Once I did that, she sent me an email via this um, Bureau of Prisons website and we were really transparent with her uh, about what we were interested in learning. Uh, and she ultimately agreed. And I think that, you know, of course I'm speculating here, but it felt like she was being as honest with us as she can be with herself. But even when there isn't a malicious bad actor involved, and even when the person under a guardianship and the people who initiated it in the first place are all on the same page, it can still fail. That was the topic of the second part in the series, which looked at what happened to Kaylee Bullwinkle, a young adult in eastern Georgia who was put under a guardianship and struggled to get out. Kaylee has Asperger's syndrome, and her parents were convinced a guardianship would prevent her from making bad decisions after she turned 18. Ronnie says this situation can be common among young adults with disabilities. So it comes from the backdrop of maybe good intentions, and then the families think, okay, well, here's a professional telling me to do this, and this happened in a number of cases. And ultimately, the families go into it, and they find very quickly how restrictive it is. They find how restrictive how the rights are taken away. In this case, in Georgia, the mother petitioned to put her daughter, who has Asperger's syndrome, under uh, what she wanted was a limited guardianship when she, after she turned 18. And she basically didn't want Kaylee to be taken advantage of when she was an adult. She wanted Kaylee to feel strong and sound when she was making financial decisions. She got into it within a year. The mother, Victoria, realized this is not right. But we, she doesn't need this. She doesn't need this. Kaylee graduated high school. Kaylee was starting community college. Kaylee had her sights on getting a job. Kaylee was handling her own financial and medical decisions, and she wanted to get out. And she hoped it would be a simple system to get out. But it took them, they were in the system for almost three years before they can get out. And it only happened when they had legal counsel come in with them and represent their interest and really object to every sort of key ruling the judge made and got all the rulings, judges' rulings overturned on appeal. Right. And it sounds like the main issue here was that the judge in this case uh, was an elected probate judge in Georgia that made some very strange decisions uh, in the case, which, as you just mentioned, were ultimately overturned. Can you talk a little bit about that, about the role that ju- how how powerful judges are in this these cases and about, you know, what happens when they make decisions that may be wrong? Sure. In this case, the Superior Court ruling found that this judge improperly further restricted Kaylee's already deeply restricted rights. So there were improper rulings along the way that were ultimately overturned. At one point, uh, more than one point, actually, the judge put the mother in contempt of court, threatened her with jail time, which really, you know, put the family in a panic mode. And they ultimately persevered, but it was not easy for them. One of the things that Holly and I found is there's at least a half dozen states that in some cases allow probate judges to issue guardianship orders without having a law degree. And, you know, some people who support these types of systems will say these are often smaller communities. You know, the judge gives great care, gives great thought to the ruling. But critics of the system will say 
should someone without a firm legal backing and legal training really be in a position to take away someone's rights? And, you know, you guys spoke with the judge in this case, uh, in Kaylee's case. It sounds like she thinks that her ruling should not have been overturned. Well, she wouldn't talk about this case specifically, but what she did talk about was that she felt that she thoroughly researches the law and that she reaches out to lawyers, studies law books, and really makes sure that she does everything right. She did She did feel that way, and we certainly reflected that in the story, but she would not talk about Kaylee's case and the fine print of this case. The third part in the series looked at what happens when court-appointed guardians can't keep up with their caseloads. Ronnie and Holly profiled a guardian who says she had to take on more than 200 clients because in many cases, the state pays her only $35 a month for each of them. Holly says it's a tricky situation. We don't want guardians to view their clients with dollar signs in their eyes. But on the other hand, they can't meet their clients' needs when their compensation is so low. There's got to be exactly the right balance and it's got to account for one, the protected person's resources. I mean, that needs to be paramount, right? Because we're not doing them any good if we're spending them into poverty through taking care of them, right? Yeah. But at the same time, you want qualified people. Um, you know, for a, for a personal needs guardian, I, if, if it was my mother, I would hope that it was somebody who had who was a licensed social worker, who had lots of training, who maybe was familiar with geriatric care. And so you want to be able to you want people to, to compensate people for skills that are necessary to do the job. What you don't want to do is is create incentives where they have that counteract sort of that objective of preserving the state. That, that sort of uh, where they have too much skin in the game, essentially. Yeah, on that front, Ayodanda was paid um, a set amount each month for every client it had under the state contract. It also had private clients that it would charge about three times as much. But what I, where Ayodanda went off the tracks was, for them, those payments were not enough. They also saw their clients getting payments from the VA and other sources, and they saw those payments, according to the DOJ, as another source of income for Ayodanda's executives. And they took advantage of it, and they got away with it for over a decade until... The Fed swooped in. Ronnie and Holly also looked at how things can go wrong when wealth is involved. The pop art painter Peter Max is in the late stages of Alzheimer's disease, and in 2016 he consented to put his estate worth millions into a guardianship. The intent was to bring in a neutral arbiter that would end a bitter fight between Max's relatives. But instead, it's led to lawsuits and counter lawsuits that generate huge legal fees, fees that are coming out of Max's now dwindling estate. Holly says one of the big problems is that there's just no way of really knowing how common situations like this are. Part of the problem is we don't have a good handle on how widespread fraud and abuse are in this context or how often guardianships are implemented when they really don't need to be. Some states uh, really do need more robust legislation. They just haven't addressed this issue. And then in New York, you've got lots of robust legislation. They've got one of the more sophisticated guardianship uh, statutes out there. But the courts aren't very good at actually making sure that everybody's complying with the requirements. So it's sort of, it's everything. It's not going to be a one-size-fits-all solution. We need more information, I think, to strike the right balance among competing incentives. You know, guardians in Peter Max's case, who are catching what seem like windfalls on their face, just insane amounts of money for somebody who's supposed to be in financial trouble. I think it just highlights that it's the situation where the state was sort of invited into his life 
And, you know, ostensibly he consented, which is difficult for me to get my head around because I just, I don't fully understand where they're drawing those fine lines across capacity to consent to these, to these different things. But ostensibly he consented uh, in order to help neutralize some of the family infighting and to alleviate some of that. And all it seems to have done is intensified and layered on like an entirely whole new layer of costs that he simply cannot afford. Yeah, a couple things on this for sure. One is that, you know, different states have different rules. There's, there's not one uniform set of rules on how guardianships operate, who can be a guardian, how many cases they can have. There are no standardized rules. It's state to state. And then what's really stunning is particularly for people who are in this system, both protected people and their advocates, is that no one in the government is counting how many times guardians abuse their their charges, their protected people. And no one in the government can even give us a firm number on the act, the active number of cases and the dollar amounts. It's just speculation. It's just estimates. That speaks to a lack of interest and attention to this whole system. So there's great there's great room for reform. One thing I will mention, David, real quick, is that Nevada actually has adopted one overhaul that I think is working to a degree. In, in Nevada, whenever someone in the state files a petition to put someone else under guardianship, whether it's a family member, a lawyer, a guardian, or someone else, the legal aid center in Nevada, the local legal aid center, gets involved. So you have a legal advocate representing the proposed protected person before the petition is approved, which is really important to get that outside accountability and outside scrutiny before. And what we found is that in a quarter of the cases in Clark County, where Las Vegas is, in a quarter of the cases, the legal aid center gets the petition rejected, which I think is pretty profound. It's a pretty meaningful number. Yeah. All right. Well, that was Ronnie Green and Holly Barker talking about their uh, recent series. Great work, you guys. This was fantastic stuff. Uh, thank you guys so much for talking. Thank you. Thanks very much. That'll do it for today's episode of On the Merits. It was produced by myself, David Schultz. Our editor is Andrew Satter. Our executive producer is Josh Block. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And we'll see you next week. In a global tax landscape that changes by the day, it's what you don't know that can leave you exposed. At Bloomberg Tax, we provide market-leading intelligence and practical applications to help tax professionals work smarter, faster, and more accurately. Our solutions provide the insights you need for game-changing outcomes. To revolutionize your performance in real time, the difference is Bloomberg Tax. Learn more at pro.bloombergtax.com.